Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mike on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who has conducted all across the world, but is much better known for being a composer. He's one of the most performed composers writing today, and his music has been at the forefront of contemporary music since the late 1970s. It is a very great pleasure to welcome John Adams. John, it's an honour and a pleasure to meet you, to see you and to speak with you today. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. I'm over jet lag, so yeah, ready you've to been, go. You've been working in Finland and now I speak to you, you're in Holland, in Rotterdam, is that right? That's right. And were you conducting in Finland or were you, had you gone to see... Yes, uh, yeah. I was uh, conducting a full orchestra for the first time since... Uh, March of last year, the last yeah. concert I did before the pandemic was uh, at the Concertgebouw. Yeah. And um, then I, you know, I got home and everything shut down. And so last week I was with this marvelous orchestra in Lati. Mm. Um, we're very famous for their Sibelius recordings and uh, also for their wonderful hall, right? yeah. really one of the best halls in Europe. I was told that it was um, built by the same architects who did the Birmingham Hall. Um, oh, okay. Existed. It's a somewhat smaller version of it. So over Arab and maybe Russell Johnson was involved with the acoustics, but yeah, their, their legacy yeah. is Dallas and, and Lucerne and Birmingham yeah. and yeah, wonderful halls. John, with everyone, I always go back to the beginning and, and ask how music first came into your life. I've read that you had musical parents, your mother sang and your father played the clarinet. Was music something that was always going to happen uh, when you look back, uh, uh, whether that be professionally or just as part of your life? I think I think that was the case. Uh, you know, my parents, uh, they were suffered very much during the Depression and neither of them were, were able to graduate from college, but they both um, had enormous respect for the arts. Mm. And... Uh, you know, when 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 you have a, a child who shows interest in in something, you know, whether it's mass math, mathematics or science or sports or music, you're 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 um, excited about that and and want to encourage it. And I'm very grateful that my parents did. And I'm sure I heard or read somewhere that you played the you, the clarinet was your instrument, and you you played in orchestras, but also in marching bands. Was that with your father as well? Did you ever share the platform yeah. with him? Oh, yes. Well, uh, uh, he was my first teacher. I wanted to study violin. Uh, our public school offered uh, lessons, um, which is such an amazing thing. That would yeah. never happen, never happen these days. Um, but there was an itinerant music teacher that came around to our very small school in New Hampshire and um, you know he could teach everything <laughs> and I wanted to take violin but they wouldn't let me because I was too young and so I reluctantly settled for uh, clarinet lessons with my with my father who was actually a very wonderful teacher he was very patient and mm. uh, so when I got a little bit older um, we both started playing with um a band. Uh, it was a concert band in, in the town, uh, Concord, New Hampshire, which is the state capital, but still not a very large city. 
And this was a, a, a concert band that went all the way back to the American Civil War. Oh, wow. Uh, and they, we did one rehearsal every Monday night during the summer, and then would, uh, they would um, drag a, 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 you know, a, a portable band shell around to the different uh, parks within yeah. the city. And we'd play um, <laughs> Poet and Peasant Overture, or uh, uh, of course, Sousa Marches. Uh, I remember, you know, the uh, Oberon Overture, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the very difficult violin parts just being yeah, transposed up a step for the clarinet. And, uh, and of course, we also marched uh, in parades on yeah. uh, Independence Day and Labor Day. I, I always ask when people have these experiences, in youth, uh, in a youth orchestra, or in your case, in a, in a concert band, um, did the conductor that was conducting you then have any sort of influence, or do you just sitting there doing your job? Did you look up and think, "I wonder what that's like. I wonder how why they do that. I wonder why they say that. And I wonder whether I'd like a go at it." Um, or was it just something that passed you by, like other conductors? You know, for me, for years, I never thought about what the conductor did. I I think I was aware of the. Uh you know, the, the act of conducting yes. a group from a very early age. Um, I watched some musical, uh, amateur musicals uh, that my mother sang in. And uh, I probably saw, well, certainly I saw Fantasia mm -hmm. uh, with Stokowski. Um, I, I don't know exactly when I, became really intensely aware of it. But uh, certainly, you know, by the time I was, uh, let's say, seven or eight years old, I, I, uh, I, I remember that I, I used my mother's uh, knitting needle to conduct the, the, the stereo. Uh, and, you know, that was a way of internalizing a lot of really great music. Yeah. Uh, I recently heard that Gustavo Dudamel, went, when he was a little kid, um, he used toy soldiers and, and made an orchestra, uh, <laughs> and and conducted the conducted the you know the little little people. Yeah. Uh, and probably that's why today he can do all the Mahler symphonies and write of spring from memory because once you internalize those things at a very early age, um, you know they they stay with you forever. That's right. That's right. It's too true. I didn't know that about uh, Gustavo Dudamel. Um, you then, as a teenager, I believe, uh, using the ever so trustful Wikipedia, as I'm, um, it says that's when you started composing, and you end up at Harvard. Now that there's listed at least four or five different composition teachers at Harvard, were you ever taught conducting? Because whilst you were there, you conducted the Bach Society Orchestra at Harvard for eighteen months. So were you ever were you ever offered lessons, or and did you take any? I took. Uh... I would say informal lessons for one summer. Yeah. Uh, there was a music festival at Dartmouth College, uh, which is a little further north in New Hampshire from where I lived. And um, the music director there had studied with both Boulanger and um, Igor Markevich in, oh. in Europe. So, yeah. you know, we had real old school chops. And I remember being very... Uh, impudent I you know I just went up to him and said uh, I want to 
take conducting lessons from you. And I, I think he was taken aback. And then he watched me. I, I, had, I think I was about 17 at the time, but I, I, I got a group of, of my fellow orchestra players who were all teenagers together. And I conducted a, a fairly difficult piece that had mixed meters and he saw me. And so he, like, he must've been impressed to some point. So he gave me some basic lessons. Those are the only lessons I ever took in my life. But, mm. uh, you know, so much of conducting really is just um, learning by doing mm. uh, what we say, the school of hard knocks. Uh, you know, you make mistakes, you learn eventually that the only thing that players really need is the upbeat. Mm. They don't need the downbeat, they need the upbeat. And uh, of course, I, you know, I, I've had the greatest conductors in the world do my music. So I've been able to watch them while they've uh, been, been working. Well, you've taken two of my mantras uh, there really, you know, I, I, much like you, you know, I, I sat and played for the greatest conductors in the world for 22 years and watched them and, and this stuff rubs off on you. And, um, and the other thing, yeah, the upbeat is all important. I remember being conducted by Gennady Rozhizvensky, the great Russian conductor, Soviet conductor, and he often would give it upbeat and never give the downbeat, and that's all you ever needed. And it yeah. took me a while to look at this and think, why aren't you giving us the downbeat? And then I realised, hey, if it's that clear, I don't need to know where the I now already know where the downbeat is. It's so true. It's absolutely true. Um, what did you conduct in the with the Bach Society Orchestra for uh, during those eighteen months at Harvard? Was it everything and anything, or I mean, it sounds like it would have been Bach, but you know what? what no, was your uh, um, in fact, I I was severely uh, scolded by uh, a colleague critic a critic uh, in in the Harvard Crimson, which is a college newspaper for. Uh, uh, pushing the envelope of, of the identity of the orchestra, because I remember one of my concerts included the Adagio from the Mahler Fifth and yeah. Afternoon of a Fawn. These are pieces I, I always loved and, and wanted to do. But I, I remember I remember my very first concert. I still remember the program that it, it um, opened with um, a dance concert by Stravinsky. Oh, yes. We did a Mozart piano concerto. Uh, I did Création du Monde by Mio and then ended with uh, the Haydn uh, 99th Symphony. And you know, the thing with those, particularly those late Haydn symphonies, they so rarely show up on orchestra programs because, you know, they take 35 minutes. Um, so they kind of take the main part of the program. And of course, most conductors really they they do lip service to Haydn but mm. they really want to do Brahms and Mahler but they're such wonderful symphonies and um uh I re did other Haydn symphonies in the course of my career I remember doing a Brahms concert when I did uh, on the transmigration of souls and I preceded it with the um Haydn Trauer symphony mm. and I also do the uh La Poule uh, mm. Which, which is very unfortunately sub, subtitled because it's actually a very powerful minor key storm and drang symphony. But anyway, uh, I, did, I did Mozart and Beethoven's second, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a college chamber orchestra. So uh, 
couldn't go too far afield with the size of it. You're right, though, aren't you? Know, most conductors do, as you say, play lip service, and you might see a Haydn symphony as a sort of a long overture with maybe a short concerto, um, but rarely do you ever see them in the second half, unless that the person who's conducting is somebody who's a historically informed performance specialist and would have filled the first half with other things. Uh, and it's or, a shame. Yeah. Or Simon Rattle. Who, or Simon Rattle, yeah. <laughs> who, who uh, you know, occasionally will put three Haydn symphonies yeah. in a concert. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly that. We're going to come to Simon later because I know you've known him for many, many, many years and and um, collaborations and whatever else. Um, so in 1979, you recorded the Common Tones in Simple Time with the San Francisco Conservatory Music Orchestra. How did your conducting career go on from there and out into the world professionally? What were your first steps into the professional world of conducting? Well, I, um, you know, I conducted in college and then um, uh, my first job, well, actually my first job was working in a, a, a shipyard, but, but my, <laughs> my first job, uh, teaching job uh, was at a very small conservatory in San Francisco. And uh, I, right from the start, was conducting uh, new music concerts, everything from Cage and Stockhausen to pieces by, you know, composers I knew. But I also conducted the, uh, the, uh, the orchestra. So I remember doing Brahms Violin Concerto and Petrushka and, and uh, Prelude and Liebestod from Tristan. So mm. I, was, I, was, I was already expanding. I didn't want to be, feel that I was a, what they call a contemporary music specialist. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, really, the first r- real professional, I guess you could call it conducting, I did was uh, when Deborah Borda, a remarkable woman who is now currently the executive director of the New York Philharmonic, uh, Mm. and I've known for over 40 years, um, she took over the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and asked me if I would be one of several uh, conductors uh, on the theory that the smaller the orchestra, the more conductors you needed to have. So, <laughs> I like that theory. <laughs> so, one of the other conductors who was, you know, a co-conductor with me was was uh, Christopher Hogwoods. Oh. So um, I had wonderful time with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. This is back in the late '80s, and then um, you know, and then I started conducting. Uh, the Cleveland Orchestra and my first British appearance, I think was with the London Sinfonietta and uh, eventually everything kind of came to the point where I spend more time uh, at home and I have to decline most invitations because as as much as I'd love to do these trips like I'm on right now, bottom line is, um, you know, I'm a composer First, first and foremost. Mm. And uh, I've interviewed Sir James McMillan, and he says sometimes he can successfully compose when he's on the road doing trips like you're doing. Other times he can't. That de- that's dependent on the mood he's in. That's dependent on the hotel yeah. he's in or the or the, the place you've rented. Um, 
uh, sometimes you know he, he takes a little keyboard with him. Sometimes he doesn't. Do you can you write when you're on the road? No, you can't. Not at all. Mm. However, what I can do is proofread. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but that's the only thing I can't compose. No, and, and 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 is that because you're so used to being in your own space to compose back home? Yeah, uh, I can understand that. Totally understand that. Uh, 1979, you become the new music advisor at the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. What did that role consist of? Um, were you running a, a separate series to their main series? How, um, how did you run it? What, what were you doing? Well, at the time, uh, the orchestra had, had recently hired a, a new music director, Seiji Ozawa, had gone mm. on to Boston, and they hired a young Dutch conductor, uh, Edo de Vart, uh, and he uh, said publicly that he, he wished that he could, you know, meet someone to help him uh, program contemporary music because he, didn't, you know, was not entirely informed about it, which is just wonderful, you know, how sincere and humble that was that, you know, most music directors would never let on the mm. fact that they didn't know something. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I was introduced to him and, and we, uh, we got along immediately. And uh, I can't remember which one of us proposed the idea of a special concert series. Uh, and they were wild concerts. Uh, they, they weren't done in the hall. They were done in crazy locations around San Francisco. Uh, I would put together you know, a program that might have the Baird Chamber Concerto followed by some in, insane, you know, improvising saxophone quartet uh, or, a, you know, Robert Ashley uh, followed by the Schoenberg Ensemble you know, or Elliot Carter followed by, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, Gavin Bryars. So, so they were really... Uh, uh, a marvelously provocative uh, mixed bag. Um, and, uh, you know, that went on for, I can't remember, several, three or four years uh, mm. until Ada left. And did you share the conducting or did Ada Devart do it all? Um, I, I, no, he he only conducted one piece in the whole time. He did the Berg Chamber, you know, but, <laughs> right. but but uh, I did most of the conducting. You know. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. if we inv sometimes if it was a composer we invited who happened to be a con conductor, they would do their own work. But I did most of it. Well, it, it's funny. The minute you mentioned Ada Devart's name, a, a massive ding went off in my head because it was exactly the recording that he made of, uh, I believe, Chairman Dance's uh, The Two Fanfares, Short Ride and Trombolantana with the San Francisco. It was the first time I heard your music, which blew my mind. But it was the minute I heard David Vart's name, I thought, oh, yes, well, of course, it was that record. Um, yeah. that, I mean, that, that to me was the moment I thought, who is this guy? I want to hear more. And actually, very soon after that, uh, in my encounter youth orchestra, we played the Chairman Dance's. Um, and that was it. I was completely sold. Um, I mean, recordings like that were, were just wonderful. I joined the CBSO not so long afterwards, and we were recording 
Harmony Lehrer and uh, and all sorts of other things. Um, I'm going to talk just briefly about an interview I watched this morning with you and Sarah Willis on the Berlin Philharmonic Concert Hall. I'm going to come back to the Berlin Phil later, but uh, and, um, there was, she was asking you about beating and about the fact that you, um, she thought yeah, they, they had about to... my my downbeat <laughs> exactly yeah but she wanted to know your feelings about playing on the beat as opposed to the sort of european tradition of playing after it i mean do you encounter that a lot when you cross the pond no yeah. uh you know it was just that i the very first piece that i did with the berlin philharmonic was harmony lara yeah and you can't do an elegant no. you know european style downbeat for that you have to just yeah. um so I think it was a joke about that, really. <laughs> uh, you know, if I do, you know, like I start the Beethoven fourth, obviously I I, mm. I don't do that kind of beat. I, I do a much, you know, more fluid type of motion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. The start of that piece, you need something rather, yeah. rather forceful, rather violent, and very right. sure of the tempo right. to make sure that the orchestra comes <laughs> right. in and uh, plays that way. Um, yeah. As I mentioned earlier on, I've I've spoken to other conductor composers or composer conductors, and I, you know, I think there is a distinction between the two. When you're invited to a new orchestra, more often than not, I'm guessing they'll ask you to conduct one of your own works. Do you have a plan about what you put with your music? Uh, for instance, James McMillan loves putting other English pieces or other British pieces in with his music. But I mean, do you have a plan or do you go more with the subject matter or what, now what's your ideas when somebody rings you up and says, will you come? And you go, yeah, actually, I'd love to come. Um, and I, I want to do this. Well, I think usually, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to be very, you know, honest about it. Usually, mm. you know, I'm, I'm invited because uh, orchestras want me to do a piece. Mm. Uh, they don't invite me to come and do Mahler. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, orchestras are very, very open. Mm. Uh, most orchestras are. Um, so, for example, uh, the concerts that I just did in Lati, Finland, I, I opened with La Valse, which is a piece I, I absolutely love, and a very remarkable, mm. complex piece of music. And I followed it with a double piano concerto by Philip Glass, which, um, um, you know, I have sort of, I blow hot and cool about Philip's <laughs> orchestra music, but this is, this is a entertaining and accessible work. And then I, I finished with, with Harmony Lara because mm -hmm. it had never been done by that orchestra. That's sort of my firebird, you know, everybody wants to have me do that. Um, but, you know, it it depends. Um, I conducted in Vienna a few years back, and the piece of mine I wanted to do was uh, Absolute Jest, uh, which is a work uh, for string quartet and orchestra that uses fragments from late Beethoven scherzos. Mm. And so the uh, the orchestra there asked me to do a Beethoven symphony. <laughs> Great. Well, that would go well with absolute yeah. jazz. And I thought, my God, you want me to do a Beethoven symphony? Well, I did. I did the the fourth, um, and it was wonderful. It was yeah. just a terrific experience. Uh, obviously, they knew it. Um, 
And I, what else was on that program? Oh, I did the Stravinsky Symphony in Three Movements. So there was kind of nice, like nice, powerful energy. That's sometimes a great I do program. Whole, sometimes <laughs> I do a whole program of my own music. Yeah. Um, that can be dangerous in some cities if I'm not well known. I remember like 25 years ago, Charles Dutois invited me to Montreal and, you know, he said, I want all John Adams. And I said, are you sure? You know, <laughs> I'm not that well known in, in Montreal. No, no, no. It must be all your music. And, uh, you know, there were not a lot of people in the hall. Mm. Uh, but, you know, there are some cities where I can do that, like Amsterdam and London and uh, Paris uh, you know, I could probably get away with it in New York and Los Angeles, but um, it's still a hard sell these days in the orchestra world because basically people who buy tickets to orchestras are like people who go to big museums. You know, they're basically want to go and hear something they're familiar with. Mm. That's true. Um, though, you know, I, I always look at it using that metaphor as they go to see the things they're familiar with. I can count many times I've been... To, say, to the Belvedere Palace in Vienna to see the Klimt. I go to see the Klimt, but every time I, I see something new, every time I go, and it actually makes the visit more yeah. interesting. You know, of course I've yeah. seen the Klimt, they're beautiful. That's why I go. But to see a new Egon Schiller or to see a, yeah. a new painting by something else is equally important. Um, I have a funny story. Uh, uh, Alan Gilbert uh, toured with the New York Philharmonic and they did an entire program of my music. This is during my 70th birthday year. And uh, I couldn't go to all the programs. I missed the one at, at Barbican, but they played in uh, the new hall in Hamburg. Mm. And uh, it was an all Adams program. And I was able to go to that and the hall was completely full and I was just on the moon. And <laughs> the next morning I'm being driven in the taxi to the airport. And, and uh, I mentioned that I'd been to the new hall and <laughs> He said, yeah, das ist ausverkauft. <laughs> every concert sold out because everybody wants to see the hall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how to be brought down to earth from the moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> When you go, or maybe you don't go, to watch other conductors conducting your music, is it easy to let go? Um, uh, you know, once the child has been born and then other people obviously want to conduct your music, um, is it easy to sit in the audience and let go? Or do you not find you've got the time to go and watch other people conduct your music? Uh, it's difficult. Um, mm. Obviously, I get a great deal of in invitations to come and what we say grip and grin you know go up on stage and <laughs> yeah. shake hands and uh and I, you know unless it's something very very special uh. Uh, um or obviously a premiere you know i i just have to say no um uh. but um you know it, it, it's it's funny because um you know i keep a journal and and uh 
you know, I have a memory of some other conductor doing a piece of mine and, and it's such a wonderful memory. And then I go back and look at the journal and see how, how angry I was <laughs> at the Tempe or something. Um, so things all, you know, they do come out in the wash eventually. Um, I have certain conductors who just absolutely understand uh, immediately. Um, you know, and I, I just am so grateful uh, to those conductors. And I think they know it because mm. they, they love the music and they keep on programming it. Mm. And then there are other conductors who, who, you know, let's say generally don't do a new piece, but they think maybe they'll do a piece of mine. And, um, you know, I, I can think of one conductor who's, he's a really terrific conductor and a lovely person. Um, <laughs> the only piece of mine he, he's done once was mm. Harmony Lara. And he told me he'd never been so terrified in his life <laughs> doing it. So I, I don't expect him to do much more of my music, but I was grateful that he at least was willing to, you know, to try to do it. And you, I mean, we mentioned Simon Rattle earlier on. I was lucky enough both to record an album of your music, but also yeah. you wrote Lollapalooza for us, which was for Simon's yeah. 40th birthday, I think, which dates yeah. how old we all are now. An yeah. incredible piece of music, which I absolutely love and desperately <laughs> want to program sometime soon. Um, when you, a bit, little bit like working with a soloist, let's say uh, Leila Josefovitz, you know, when you get to know a conductor, do you think you can write music specifically for them, knowing what their attributes are? Uh, like for Alan Gilbert or for Simon or... Well, I wish I could say that was the case, but it, it's it not. I mean, you know, I just am writing the piece I want. Um, yeah. You know, Michael Tilson Thomas, who's done a great deal of my music, um, and we're very close friends, but he, he several times, you know, said, well, you know, my gift as a conductor is to push and pull and you know, and do all these things with the phrasing and, and with your music, I just have to keep things from falling apart. You know, <laughs> uh, you know I think he was expressing, uh, you know, a certain, uh, you know, frustration that he, his, what he was best at wasn't being called upon in the music. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think he's exaggerating because he's done wonderful things with it. Well, you've led on to a, a one more little question. Well, it's not a little question at all. Uh, it's a very personal question from me. William Walton was quoted as saying that he never understood what the difficulty was conducting his overture Portsmouth Point, uh, probably because he wrote it. He didn't find it difficult to conduct at all, whereas most conductors do find it difficult. For various reasons, I've conducted Short Ride in the Fast Machine, your piece, 31 times, oh. and I've desperately tried to memorise it. And well, me, I cannot memorize it for the life of me. I always fall over. Um, when you write a piece of music, do you ever look down at, at the time signatures or multi-time signatures you've written and think, oh, shit, one of these days I'm going to have, might, might have to conduct this myself and it's very difficult? Or, or do, do you not think that at all? Do you just, you're just writing from the heart and what comes out is what comes out? No, I think actually the opposite's the case that sometimes... Right. Uh, I, I, I worry that um, I'm always writing something that falls within my, you know, my toolkit. Mm. 
Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think of somebody like Ligeti, um, who obviously wasn't a conductor, and he just wrote what came into his mind and mm. let somebody else deal with the realities. Um, but with that said, you know, it's wonderful to look at Mahler's scores and and study them from the point of view of him being a conductor. Yes, uh, that's very true. And and seeing all the things, you know, one of the things you know about Mahler is that he was always frustrated with the woodwinds that they weren't loud enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, if you look at the opening to the last movement of the Seventh Symphony, this is insanely difficult. Uh, super hyperactive writing for the woodwinds and mm. everyone is playing. Uh, you know, he doesn't like give somebody a little break to hop in. Um, I once read in a bar of Mahler, this really funny story of, I think they were rehearsing in the pit Balker or something and, and the woodwinds weren't loud enough. And he said, louder, louder, louder. And they kept playing. And then he said, hold your instruments up, hold them up blow harder and they did and it wasn't louder than he said stand up (laughs) (laughs) so so, um you know you can see in 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 the orchestration of of certain conduct uh, composers who were very gifted conductors um you know how how they experienced the orchestra Mm. um but with that said you know one of the most absolutely astonishing uh, orchestrators is, of course, Ravel. And apparently he was a terrible conductor. (laughs) And so was Debussy. Uh, But they they didn't let that get in the way of their uh, of their of their work. Before we go to the 10 questions, a question that every conductor has been asked. When you come to learn a new score, do you sit at your desk and learn it using your inner ear or do you use a piano? And are you a scribbler in, in your scores in red, blue and black of notes and cues and, yeah. or, or do you just leave it all blank and, and, and to the rehearsal? Well, um, no, I, I uh, you know, I think they're, I'm always suspicious of the, People saying that they just look at the score and hear it in their head. I think that's really a very doubtful. Um, you know, people imagine that we composers walk around with an internal eye, you know, iPod in yes. our head, and we can yes. just you know dial up some piece and hear it in great detail. And of course, we don't hear that way. Um, I can look at a score, especially if I know the piece, I can look at a score and I wouldn't say so much hear it, but I can, I can feel it. Mm. Um, so if I'm trying to learn a piece, I basically try to learn a piece as if I could do it from memory. Yeah. Um, um, I, I want to learn it that well. Um, but I also listen to recordings. Yeah. Um, I listen to recordings because I think that's part of the culture of, um, you know, the history. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I, I did La Valse last week and it was a great education um, because you can do this on YouTube now is, is to go back and hear 
a recording from the Orchestre Lamoureux from 1930. Wow. Uh, or hear what, uh, you know, various Charles Munch did with it, um, um, you know, and on and on and on and on. And, and of course, with each conductor, you probably hear things that you disagree with, but you also have little moments of illumination. Oh, I never noticed that. Or, oh, well, that's a wonderful way of treating that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very rich uh, delving into a piece. Um, I One of my goals in life has been to do all, to have done all the Sibelius symphonies, and I've done almost all of them. I don't understand the third symphony. I don't think I'll ever do that. <laughs> oh, it's but, fun, but I, funny. I don't understand the fourth symphony. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, maybe. I love the fourth. I've done the fourth. <laughs> well, maybe we ought to have a chat about each other's ones we don't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I'm doing the, the first symphony with several really good orchestras this year, and... Yeah. Uh, you know, that's and it's all it also informs my composing as well. Um, and I often wonder what it's like to not be a composer and to learn a score. I mean, how is that different from the way I experience learning a score? Because I am always thinking about, oh, that's that's an interesting compositional decision. You know, mm. why did you do that or, or et cetera, et cetera. And I think probably if you're not a composer, you you may miss a lot of detail. Well, I think all you do is add one question in between, which is, oh, well, that's an interesting piece of orchestration. And But then your next question should be, and I wonder what led him to compose it that way. Um, but I think sometimes conductors might stop before going on to that one you've just said about, you know, why, comp why write it and compose it that way? You know, what was the decision? Um, but it's fascinating to hear that you use recordings. A lot of the people who've come on the podcast do. Uh, Pavel Yev is famously said, you've been an idiot not to go back and listen to the, yeah. the greatest conductors in the world conducting repertoire you're about to conduct. Why would you not want to do right. that? You know, yeah, absolutely. If you are new to this podcast, you may not know that there is another way you can learn about conductors and conducting by subscribing to my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I guest conduct. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded fans of this podcast. You can read articles on conducting and conductors and also see videos of the great conductors. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is about the price of a nice glass of wine you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, John Adams. John, it's that moment of every podcast episode where you get to answer the 10 questions. And I always start with the same two. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? What sound or noise do I love? Um, you know, I'm always terrible with these, um, you know, um, exceptionalist questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because there's so many sounds I love. Uh, can I pass on that? I, I really, you know, <laughs> I mean, what can I say? Well, uh, <laughs> 
well, at least you've got many that you love. I suspect, therefore, I mean, I, I think the sound that I hate the most is Donald Trump's voice. Uh, <laughs> You're not alone in giving that answer on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. You'll be, you won't be, you won't be surprised to learn that. I'm sure you are not I the sure. first person to say that. <laughs> so, though so one conductor did. Uh, rather euphemistically, you just say the sound she hated was American politics, but we all knew yeah, what she meant. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, question three. If you had 24 hours free, what would you like to spend it doing? <laughs> oh, good. That, that's nice that you started with if. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, I think... Uh, I share with certain composers um, a love for uh, hiking and, and uh, yeah. you know, trekking. Um, I have two locations uh, in the California countryside. One, one is high up in the Sierra Mountains, a small cabin, and then another a little, what I call my Mahler composing hut, which is uh, in, uh, in the deep coastal forests. So I loved being in uh, settings like that and, and uh, walking. And I'm assuming that's a wonderful place, as you've alluded to with Marla and whatever, for you to both empty your thoughts, but also to have lots of thoughts about music and themes and ideas. Yes, it would be a lot better if I didn't have internet, but um, these days... Uh... <laughs> You always there's always some reason that you have to have it. That's true. Question number four: Can you name your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Oh, well, I can't name my favorite conductor of living conductors because I would offend somebody <laughs> if I, you know, if I left them out. Um, in the of conductors who are no longer with us. Um, I'm very fond of Claudio Abbado. Mm. Um, I have a recording that he made of Faustoff uh, with the Berlin Philharmonic that is just, it's just a miracle, the mm. whole thing. Um, I have an extremely violent love-hate relationship with Leonard Bernstein. Um, you know, there are many things that he did that I find just, just vulgar. Uh, but then there, there are things that um, that he could do that were just incomparably wonderful, um, and that's probably good. You know, yeah. uh, I think I'd like people to think that about me rather than just, oh, you know, he's good. Um, you know, I have conductors that always whose reputations always puzzle me. For example, uh, Toscanini. When I'm studying a, a you know, a, a piece of standard repertoire um, if I listen to like let's say 10 or 20 different performances it's always the Toscanini that appalls me <laughs> so I don't understand what the magic was there mm. um, maybe it was just something that didn't transfer to you know electronic uh, technology well that's enough I think that, there are the, you know, those names are, you know, great names of the conducting world. It sounds like in your preamble to that answer, you're going to refuse to answer question five then, which is who would be a favourite current conductor? <laughs> and I know it's a cruel question. Uh, and sometimes people have been repertoire specific, 
But I have had occasionally people who said they'd rather not answer for various reasons. So if you'd rather not answer because you don't want to offend anyone. Well, look, I, I can say that I have many wonderful conductors who've done my music. Mm. Um, and um, many of them are you know, very close friends. Um, yes. So if I made a list and I left somebody out, I'd, I'd feel devastated. But I, you know, I can mention that you know, there are people I've known for a long time, like, like Simon. Um, you know, I've had a wonderful, wonderful creative uh, friendship with Gustavo Dudamel, who's done not only a lot of my music, but he's done a, an astonishing amount of contemporary music for which he never gets much credit for because we associate him with other things. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I go way back with uh, Michael Tilson Thomas, who we, uh, the first time he ever did a piece of mine was 1983. Um, of course, Edo DeVart was very instrumental uh, in, in doing my music. Um, um, you know, Alan Gilbert has been a big, big fan. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting, you know, really David Robertson uh, mm. loves my work and has always, I can always count on David to do a, uh, you know, really marvelous uh, performance. So um, that's, not too shabby. Marin, Marin Alsop, um, she's done terrific things. And I, I recently wrote and dedicated a piece to her. Um, and then there, you know, there's some young, younger conductors that I'm, I'm very excited about. Um, Karina Kanalakis mm. it was not too long ago that she was uh, a fellow in a uh, conducting workshop that David Robertson and I did at Carnegie Hall, and now she's well on her way to being a superstar. Um, um, and this young Korean conductor who was uh, going to do my next opera, uh, Sung Kim, I've only seen her conduct once and she did, you know, pretty standard repertoire Tosca, but I was uh, really impressed with the fluid quality of her conducting and her absolute confidence uh, and vitality that she communicated to the orchestra. So, um, yeah. Brilliant choices. Conductors, yeah. Well, brilliant choices. And I'll put a disclaimer on this podcast that if if you if you're one of those names John's forgotten, he's he's smiling and grinning at me and nodding and saying, Yes, I'm really sorry. So there we are. There's a disclaimer. And as it happens, John had forgotten somebody really important and sent me this small little soundbite after the interview had finished. And of course, uh Esapeka Salonen, for whom I wrote in 1999, uh, my big symphony, naive and sentimental music, and who's been not only a, a wonderful conductor of my music, but also a composer colleague. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? <laughs> well, hard comes in all sorts of, of course. different forms. I mean, I remember uh, touring with a youth orchestra in Europe about uh, 10 years ago and uh, doing the Sibelius 7th. And th these kids didn't understand it. 
Um, and I worked so hard. Um, but, you know, I wondered, well, you know, is, is this my problem? Is it theirs? Uh, or is it just, this is a hard nut to crack. Uh, but I, I, I remember it every time, but that piece is not even 20 minutes long. And I would come off stage and have to change my shirt. I would be so, uh, you know, exhausted from doing it. Um, just in terms of pure technical um, video game concentration, <laughs> uh, Steve Reich's Tehalim is, mm. is really, uh, uh, really tricky because of, it goes very fast and the meters uh, are changing constantly. And you can ask any conductor who's done that piece and their eyebrows go up because <laughs> uh, we all know how hard it is. Um, let's see, I've done some Conlon Nancaro. They were arrangements of his player piano music. Oh, yeah which I did with the Ensemble Moderne years ago. And those are very tricky. I think the Ives Fourth was, was, the tricky thing about the Ives Fourth, it wasn't so much beating time. It was, it was trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, put it all together because so much of the rhythmic stuff in it is, is it's almost irrational. <laughs> And I actually did take some of the more complex meters and I put them into a, uh, a, a program that I have and, uh, and sort of, uh, um, I wouldn't say round them off, but I made them within, let's say a hemi-demi-semi-quaver, uh, made them possible to play without uh, approximating, which is what mm. otherwise you have to do with the fourth symphony. That's a tough piece. Um, uh, yeah, it's tough because, as you said, the, the incredibly complex rhythms, incredibly complex orchestration. You know, got, you've got violinists that start off stage, and then come on stage and go off stage again. And but the one that made me smile is Sibelius Seven. For a non-conductor, that piece just sounds like the most organic thing you'll ever listen to. As you said, twenty minutes. It, you're constantly playing in your mind of how much a cello and where you've got to get yeah. to in, in 100 bars time. Because if yeah. you get that wrong, then the next section is at the wrong yeah. tempo. And, and you're doing that all of the time. And I was yeah. grinning away and thinking, yeah, well, that's a perfect choice. It's so hard. <laughs> and if you haven't got, if you've got an orchestra there who's not with, I, A, with you, or B, with you, you know, really into the piece, it, it's, oh, it's so difficult. Oh, a brilliant <laughs> choice. <laughs> When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Here it is right here. <laughs> this is, this is, um, it's called fingertip moistener. It, it, right. It's like, it's like a little grease. Yeah. And I, have, I, I always have it on the podium with me because uh, I just often can't turn a page without grabbing two by mistake. Uh, maybe it's because, you know, over the years, my, my, you know, my, my fingers have lost some of their, um, you know, uh, ability to, you know, pick up a piece of paper. So I desperately need this. And, you know, when a music librarian for an orchestra like the Berlin Phil comes and says, Maestro, may I take your scores? And I always hand them this thumb grease and they look at it like, what is this? And... Um, <laughs> That's that's what I absolutely need. Well, 
it's a first. I've never heard of thumb grease. Uh, and it, it's the first first time I've heard that answer. But what a brilliant thing! I'm going to investigate it. Um, that's yeah. Well, if you've uh, if you've ever been you know conducting something that it's going a mile a minute and there's a page turn every three seconds, and the conductor turns two pages by mistake. Uh, You'll understand why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my fingers are normally a bit sweaty, so I mean, I can I can normally do a page turn, but yeah, I'm going to investigate that. Brilliant answer. I totally didn't expect that. That's wonderful. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, this is more political and economic, and not terribly witty of me to say, but. Um, I'm very distressed by how little rehearsal time there is, particularly in the United States. Um, I just came from Finland where I had three days of mm. rehearsing from 10 to, 10, uh, 10 to two. Yeah. And, then, and then the fourth day was, was you know, 11 to two. And we were really able to get things done. Um, but in the United States, um, there is just this terrible pressure to, to get a program uh, done in as little time as possible. And, you know, one orchestra, uh, I couldn't believe it, uh, uh, has actually, in a two and a half hour service, their break is 25 minutes long because they feel they're the best orchestra in, in the world. So they, they don't need that extra five minutes. So that's a really a, a terrible thing. That doesn't really have to do with conducting. It really has to do with the culture of orchestras. Um, oh, but, but I, I, I disagree in the fact, you know, I, I'm from the UK and a lot of my work's in the UK. And the amount of rehearsal time that we have here is far less than it is on continental Europe. I've just returned from Trondheim in Norway and done a film music concert there. The sort of thing that in the UK one orchestra in particular I know would attempt to do it on one three-hour rehearsal, the dress yeah. rehearsal, and then do the concert. In in Norway, I had, much like you, I had from 10 till yeah. 2.30 for two days, then a full three-hour dress rehearsal before in the morning before the concert in the evening on the third day. It meant that we were under no stress. Players weren't smashing trumpets into their face or, you know, killing yeah. themselves with vibrato or whatever, and then they're tied in the concert. It meant that you could just do it at a luxurious pace and nobody feels stressed yeah. about it. Yeah. I, you know, another thing I, I, I believe that uh, a conductor should live in the community that he's music director in, or she. Yes. Um, and I have two instances, uh, both in where I live, where the conductors do live there. Um, mm -hmm. Gustavo lives in Los Angeles and MTT, uh, you know, his home was in San Francisco. So they became more than just the music director. They became really cultural figureheads in the community. I mean, what, what Gustavo has done there uh, with the Hispanic culture and with youth orchestras um, has just absolutely revitalized um, music in, in the Los Angeles area. And, and Michael was, you know, he was like, as, more popular than the mayor in, <laughs> in San Francisco. And the trouble is um, you get a lot of big orchestras and they have a music director who might keep an apartment, but they're really not part of the community. Mm. You know, they're flying off or they've got another orchestra or an opera company. 
and it's just like a gig for them. Um, so I, I deeply appreciate uh, a music director becoming part of the community. Here, here. I've said it before on the podcast, and I'm here hearing it again. Absolutely true. Couldn't agree with you more. Number nine. Now, you're and yet another one who's already got two jobs. Um, the composer and conductor, like Sir James McMillan, and also like Daniel Harding, airline pilot and conductor. So <laughs> uh, if you could choose another profession uh, other than your own two that you already do, what would you have liked to have done? Or would you like to attempt? Well, I love to write and, you know, I, I probably would maybe have written fiction. Um, um, it's just something I grew up with. I've always had, a, had, a, had a, an ability to, to express myself in words. Um, or I, I might like to teach very young children. Um, mm. uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't teach, but I'm always open to young composers bringing their works to me. But it's always interesting that the younger they are, the more interesting the experience is. Mm. And the older they get, the more fraught with anxieties and neuroses and the less I can do for them. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's just wonderful. I remember this very talented young boy coming, coming over to my house uh, I think he was like, his voice hadn't even changed. You know, he was probably eight years old or something. And I said, have you ever heard the Mahler fourth? And he said, no. <laughs> and just to be able to sit with him and, you know, be there uh, at that moment when this obviously very, very sensitive and, and talented and bright kid was it was having his first encounter with the Mahler fourth was just uh, you know it was just a privilege for me if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink well i have to uh confess to my california fidelity that uh obviously a good um napa valley cabernet of uh, course and uh you know uh, some of our fresh produce, maybe something that uh, my wife has grown in her own garden um, because uh, when summer rolls around uh, in Northern California, I never go to Tanglewood or Aspen or Lucerne uh, because uh, I just want to stay home and enjoy the good life in Northern California. <laughs> well that sounds very good i mean it's not as if you're short of good produce and the wine is fantastic and john it's been fantastic and as i said at the beginning an honor as somebody who's played your music a lot and has conducted as i said short ride over 30 times <laughs> and want to conduct lots more especially a Lollapalooza. it's been an honor it's been a pleasure thank and thank you for coming on and doing the podcast for me oh well i had a wonderful time talking with you too mike a Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an Irish conductor, who divides her time between composing and conducting, both on the concert platform and in the recording studio. She works often in the world of film, TV and video games, and in 2020, she was the first woman to conduct at the Oscars. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>